You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good evening. I'm thankful we can be together tonight as a church. We aren't meant to be uh, mourners alone. Grief is too heavy a weight to carry all by ourselves. And so we gather tonight like friends of Jesus gathered the night after he was laid in the tomb. Through centuries, the church has referred to this night this gathering as tenebrae. It's the Latin word for shadows. The friends of Jesus, it felt as though the darkness had been snuffed out. The darkness had overtaken them. They were, they were gathered there. They, they were left with betrayal and abandonment and agony. Not only of the violent and brutal and agonizing death of their friend Jesus, whom they loved, but they also had a deep and unsettling sense of despair, a loss of hope. How how can they be saved now? See, we we have the great advantage tonight of knowing the rest of the story. We we know the story's not over, and everything in us longs to to reach through the pages of Scripture and and comfort these heart-sick mourners that we encounter. But tonight, instead of us jumping to the end, I want us to enter into the shadows with them. Instead of joy rescuing us from grief tonight, I propose that we allow the pain and the grief of Mark 15 to cause our hearts to long deeply for the joy to to come. That, That the suffering and the agony and the grief of Good Friday would set our hearts ablaze with anticipation and hope and yearning for Resurrection Sunday. And so with a name to help our ears become eyes and awaken our hearts, Let's consider together the events of this Friday as it is recorded by Mark in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in chapter 15. You heard Jesse read in Mark 15, the first 15 verses. You might title that, Jesus Delivered to Pilate. What you find in the Scriptures is that Jesus is the central figure in any scene that He appears. We discover that His very presence in any scene lays bare the inmost being of those that He encounters. Think of Barabbas. We know nothing more of this man than is what's recorded in the Gospels. And for one terrible moment, he steps into the light of history and takes the center stage for all of humanity. 
Without a word spoken on the stage, this man's life has prepared the moment of the Savior's death. Rebellion, murder, insurrection, the the man was condemned to die an awful death, the death of crucifixion. His cross was already prepared. So bound in chains, he's led from the darkness and filth of a prison cell into the light of his last day, his eyes squinting from the brightness and his heart pounding as he hears the violence and the voices of the crowd, and he readies himself to endure the shame and horror that awaits him, and and yet he hears, Barabbas, go free. Another takes your place. His chains are unlocked, and they fall to the ground, and he's free to go. And there he sees the other, the substitute. How can this be? Why? Who who is this man? Let's think of Pilate. There's a famous painting by Munkatsky. He's a Hungarian painter. And the painting's called Christ Before Pilate. It's from the 19th century. It's, It's a masterpiece. In March of 1877, a reporter from the Boston Record, we know as the Boston Herald now, what he wrote after seeing it on display, he said that the effect as one enters is unique and startling. There seems a subdued and reverent atmosphere pervading the place. You feel as if suddenly carried back 1,800 years and standing in the very presence of of dread reality which is there portrayed before you. He then goes on to say, after looking long at the picture, the artist has reversed the positions of these men. He's painted not Christ before Pilate, but Pilate before Christ. And so it was. One pities Pilate while condemning him. When you put the scenes of the gospel writers together, you see a man staring into his own soul, compelled to admit the sinlessness of Jesus, and therefore urged by the law and and by his conscience and by the pleas of his wife to deal justly, yet having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. From there, Todd read to us what My Bible titles the mocking of Jesus. What happens here takes our breath away. Even Hollywood at its best can't capture the full extent of what takes place on that day. The thorns the soldiers forced into Jesus' head stung and sliced like razors. The spit ran down his face. It was vile and obscene as the venom they spewed with their words. Jesus felt every slap, every blow from the rod that mocked his royalty. The robe that draped across the open wounds on his back hung heavy with contempt, and his body was already so broken, a bystander named Simon had to carry his crossbeam up the hill where Jesus would die. 
The nails they drove through his hands and feet held firmly only because Jesus willingly gave himself as the atonement for the sins of the world. Luke will note in his gospel that the women following were, were mourning and lamenting. They knew it was not a day for rejoicing. Their friend and Savior would, would be dead in hours. And all that they could do was weep. From there, the scene moves to the crucifixion. Words are inadequate to depict the horrific scene, which, which might be why it's written so simply and tersely. A man was put to death on a Friday afternoon, which is nothing extraordinary considering the brutality of the Romans at the time, except that this man was perfectly innocent. His trial was unjust, the accusations were false, the abuse was unnecessary. Rather than just imprisoned or exiled, he was nailed to a cross, and execution contrived to prolong pain and humiliation. Jesus hung between two criminals, and when his true position was a seat at the right hand of the Father, He was subjected to a barrage of insults and disgrace when what he, was, what he deserved was all blessing and honor and glory and power. And the soldiers plungered and placed bets for his possessions when he was willing to graciously give them all things. For one unbearable stretch of time, Jesus faced every hideous impulse of humanity as all hell broke loose on earth. In the middle of this scene in Mark's gospel, Luke records a detail about two robbers, the, the thieves that were crucified with Jesus on that day. He says one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, you're not the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, and as he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Wherever we find Christ, we find hope. The exchange between the Son of Man and the Son of Man reminds us of this truth. While there seems to be no end to our capacity to sin, we're never beyond the bounds of His grace. By the mercy of God, one thief was given eyes to see during the darkest day of his life. He knew his punishment was deserved. He also knew that he was dying beside the one whose rightful place was on the throne. With the little breath he had left, this thief boldly and humbly drew near to grace, begging only to be remembered in eternity. And as grace would have it, Jesus promised much more. 
You won't be just a memory, he told him. You'll be with me. From there, Mark records the death of Jesus. In the 34th verse of the 15th chapter, it says, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lema, Zebachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words of Jesus are known as the cry of dereliction, the cry of abandonment. Johann Sebastian Bach, German composer, one of the greatest composers of all time, invented a feature, a technique that he used when he composed his work, The, the Passion of St. Matthew. The technique is called the halo. It was designed to give the words of Jesus a special treatment, and a special string quartet would would play various chords alongside the first orchestra. It would play with sustained notes to highlight the words of Jesus, and in doing so, it, it created an effect like a halo that, to quote, floated round the utterances of Christ like a glory. It was described as brilliant. But it was here in these words, this this cry of dereliction, that Bach understood the theological significance of what was taking place. So at this place in the narrative of Matthew's passion. He suspends the halo, a voice that had previously filled the grand hall, sounding like it was coming from all directions and out of every corner of the room, now cries out, piercing through silence, unaided and unaccompanied. One theologian comments this way, Bach discerned that the absolute appropriate place to suspend the halo was at the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The glory of the Father was withdrawn from the solitary figure on the cross. Now he's all alone and forsaken. God forsaken. It's a term used to describe a desolate place where nothing can survive. A place full of neglect and misery. A place with no evidence of hope. And on this day of shadows, as heaven turned its back on the only begotten Son, these words describe Jesus. This caused him the deepest pain of all. Here on history's darkest day, Jesus became sin. It's important to understand this because it goes beyond the idea of just bearing sin. It goes beyond the idea of representing our sin. Jesus became sin. Every murder, 
every lie, rape, robbery, war, abuse, idolatry, racial slur, prideful attitude, lustful thought, careless word, everything you can think of, everything unthinkable. That was Jesus on the cross, cursed and cast off. Why? Because we were cursed. Lawlessly keeping the law was an impossible burden for hearts of stone, forever separating us from God. And He didn't want it to stay that way, so Jesus became the perfect sacrifice, drinking to the dregs the cup of God's wrath, substituting Himself as a sacrifice for every past, present, and future sin, bringing to us peace. And so Mark records, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed, his last. John tells us in his account that the words of the last cry were, it is finished. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And in that moment, a centurion guard ushers us into the pain and grief and silence of the heavenly throne room when he says, truly this man was the Son of God. From there, the story that Mark tells about that Friday ends here. There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Solomon. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. There were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he'd learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. In some ways, the scene is a relief. The suffering of Jesus is over. He's pierced and crushed and Wounded body can rest now in a newly cut tomb given by a friend. At the same time, for some, the suffering begins. The disciples and friends still have not put all the pieces together. All they know is their teacher's gone. They thought he would come to save them. They did not expect him to die. They 
They thought he would be a ruler, not a martyr. Now they were alone and afraid, and only the women bravely mourned at his grave. John tells us two wealthy men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, claimed and buried Jesus. Scripture calls them secret disciples. Too fearful in life to follow him publicly, only revealing their true hearts in his death. And still scheming, we find the Pharisees and priests worried that the disciples would try to stage a resurrection and incite the people once more. So Pilate sent them off with a guard and his seal, hoping for an uneventful third day. So tonight on this Good Friday, we want to remember Jesus laying down his life for sinners and then being laid in a grave, wrapped in linen, left for dead, and mourned by hearts that were broken. Listen, we we know there's more, though, more that they, they couldn't see, and, and more yet to come. Jesus was setting us free at the cost of his own life. The innocent had to be declared guilty, so the guilty could be declared innocent. So to help us remember tonight, what we'll do is we'll observe communion together. Let me say tonight that if you're trusting Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation and the forgiveness of your sins, we invite you to participate with us tonight. If you're here tonight and you're still contemplating Him and you're contemplating this man, Jesus, we'd ask that you just, just watch us. Consider what it is that He has done. Also, want to invite you to come back Sunday morning because the story's not over. Actually, it, it's only just begun. And whatever grief, whatever loss, whatever longing the Spirit has stirred in you tonight, allow that to remind your heart of the white, hot, blazing fire of hope and joy of the resurrection of Jesus and the blessed hope of glory that awaits the resurrection of new life to come. As we listen to these words, some of the final words that Jesus spoke with his disciples on the, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he told his disciples that he was about to fulfill his Father's plan of salvation. Matthew records it this way. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said to them, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins.
And I tell you, I will not drink of this again, this fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So they shared that meal. I want to invite uh, the folks that are going to help us with our communion tonight. We're going to take communion a little differently than we usually do. Tonight we're going to take communion by intinction, which means you'll come up, you'll, you'll get out of your seat here in a moment and take a piece of bread and dip the end of it into the juice, and then you'll eat it. And families, if your children aren't ready for communion, then that's okay. They can, they can walk with you up here. And, and then once you're done, then you, you can make your way back to your seat, and we'll, we'll sing once more again and be dismissed. I'll pray, and we'll start with the front rows, and we'll have, I think, two sections here and two sections in the middle. And you just make a line and make your way as you're ready. And we'll all gather back in our seats in a little bit and we will be dismissed together. So if you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we've come tonight not in a way that is meant to be morbid, but, Father, we have come to remember the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus. To remember that you sent your only begotten Son to save us. So, Father, help us not to rush too quickly to the end. But, Father, certainly to long afresh for the joy of the resurrection to come. We thank you. We know the end of the story. We thank you for that. Father, we thank you for what we remember tonight. Because without it, we, we don't have a chance that your Son stepped in and took our place. And so, Father, with, with reverence and humility and grief and thankfulness, and joy and celebration and honor to you and glory to your Son. We take this communion this evening in remembrance of Him. And so, Father, we, we pray to you tonight the only way we can, and that is in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. 
And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.